0: To reach the southernmost point of Earth, the South Pole, and you had Scott and his troop, and Abbotson and his troop. Both groups mapped out their way to get to the South Pole. Abbotson had learnt from the native folks and the people of that area, and figured out his mode of transportation would be sled dogs, that he would use sled dogs to incrementally reach the South Pole, about 15 kilometers, about 20 miles each day, rain or shine. Scott was a little bit more calculated and figured that he would kind of outsmart the situation, so he brought uh, kind of primitive snowmobiles, he brought ponies, he brought a few sled dogs but he was going to get this thing done on the grit of the back of the men in his troop. So Amundsen takes off and with these sled dogs who were accustomed to this terrain, makes a 700-mile trek to the South Pole, plants a Norwegian flag, and returns 700 miles back all things well. Scott, on the other hand, Begins with these primitive snowmobiles and, and they kind of fall apart. Then he goes with the, uh, uh, the, the ponies and the ponies aren't you know used to the terrain. And then he, he begins to use these sled dogs. But because he didn't like the speed that they were going at and, and he would take long rests to do other things and that's just not what the uh, sled dogs were built to do and how they were built to uh, uh, travel, he sends back the sled dogs only a quarter way through this journey. And then on grit and kind of machismo, he attaches the sleds, weighing 200 pounds or so, to the back of his men, and they make the 700-mile trek to the South Pole, only to arrive and realize that Amasid and his team had gotten there first as he sees the Norwegian flag waving and now they must return 700 miles back but because he was so ill-equipped because he had decided he was going to do it his way they never arrived back home scott and his men died on the journey back so often We rely during the most difficult seasons, the toughest conditions on ourselves. And we bet that we know better, that we can figure it out, that grit and determination can see us through difficult seasons. for the difficult situations and conditions that you might find yourself in this morning. I want to ask you this question. What, or maybe more importantly, who are you really relying on? Luke, one of the authors of the Gospels, writes an account that I want to draw our attention to this morning, an account of just seven verses that for me really are some of the most climactic moments in all of Scripture because of what weighs in the balance. Luke writes this in Luke chapter 22, verse 39. Jesus went out, as usual, to the Mount of Olives, And his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. His sweat was like drops of blood Falling to the ground. And then he rose from prayer and went back to his disciples. He found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. You pray with me, Lord Jesus. Not by our will, not by our might, our determination, Father God, are we connected to you. But by the precious blood of your son, Jesus, revealed to us this morning, Father God, the need, the desperation that's in our true beings to commune and communicate with you. We love you, we thank you, in Christ's name, all God's people said. I want to set... The scene for you of this passage. This is right after the Passover dinner that Jesus has been in the upper room with his disciples. He has prayed for them, like it says in John chapter 17. He prayed that they would be one with each other and one with Christ as Christ is one with the Father and that unity might bind them together that the world may know and see the glory of God. Jesus has served them the Passover meal. He tells them, do this every time you drink. Do this every time you eat in remembrance of me. It's a holy moment in this moment, Jesus also tells Peter, Peter, before the rooster crows, three times you will deny me. At the same instant, Judas makes his way out of the upper room and heads to meet the centurions, helps, begins to meet the Roman the Roman soldiers who he will put into the hands of Jesus. He will betray Jesus for pieces of silver for a wealth beyond imagination. Judas is going to put Jesus into the hands of the enemy Jesus is going to spend hours in trial after trial after trial after trial till he meets Pontius Pilate and Pontius Pilate will commit Jesus to death on the cross. But Jesus first leaves the upper room, travels down and through the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives, this mountain um this this mountain scape and stops In the Garden of Gethsemane, he stops in this orchard, this grove of olive trees. Facing the Temple Mount. Where the literal presence of God was. Where the holies of holy was. He's facing the Temple Mount with the disciples. And there they stop and pray. In this grove named Gethsemane, which literally means oil press. This is the Lord's final act. And in his final act, with his final words to his disciples, Jesus doesn't give. Instructions to do this or to do that or stay here or go there with his final words before he goes to the cross to his disciples. He tells them to pray that they would not fall into temptation of sin. Friends, are we in agreement that someone's last words are probably their most thoughtful words? That someone's last words are probably the legacy piece they hope to be remembered by. And hear Jesus' final words to his disciple before he goes to the cross. Pray that you may not fall into temptation and sin. What is our Lord telling us? Our Lord is telling us this moment. This moment that he is in, that they are in, is full of consequence, is full of repercussion, is full. And something is on the line. Paul writes to the church in Rome and articulates what Jesus was trying to get the disciples to understand in this moment. Paul writes this in. Romans chapter 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus wants his disciples and you and I to understand this in view of a cross, in the shadow of Calvary, Knees filthy in the earth of the Garden of Gethsemane. He wants to bring us there in that moment for us to understand the wages of our sin, our transgression, our iniquities, the things that separate us from Holy God. The wage, what we deserve for that is death. But there is good news. Though we deserve death, The good news is there is a gift of God. And that gift is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I don't care if you're a believer or not believer. Everyone understands that there is sin and brokenness in them. But do they understand the good news of what Jesus was prepared to do in those moments? What I want you to understand about prayer is this, and write this down in your notes. Prayer may not deliver you from trials, but prayer will deliver you through trials. Whatever condition you find yourself in, whatever trek you find yourself in, whatever obstacle is ahead of you, prayer may not deliver you from that. That may not be the will of God. But prayer will for certain deliver you through that. That is the right vehicle that God has given us to have instant connection with him. In the garden, Jesus shows us that there are garden implications that lead to our life application. Friends, are you okay if I go through this passage just verse by verse? These seven verses that I believe, if you lean in here, If you lean in with these seven verses, I believe this will have an immense impact on your life. Jesus says this, verse 22, excuse me, verse 39. Look at this in chapter 32. Jesus went out as usual. The Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, "Pray that you will not fall into temptation." He withdrew about a stone throws beyond them, knelt down, and prayed. Stop right here and understand. Look at this. If you're if you're inclined to circle and underline, I want you to underline and circle. Usual, reaching the and then the place. Usual and the place. Some of you ain't going to do that. Okay, that's fine. Don't write it down. Don't circle it. You're going to need it later. Trust me. Right here, Luke is showing us. is pointing out that this wasn't foreign to Jesus, what he's doing. This was his usual place of prayer. This was his usual spot. Luke writes down, as usual. He went as usual there, and the disciples followed him to that place. So everybody knows what's going on. Because there's a moment where they know this is my spot where I meet God. You got a usual place? You see, many of us don't have usual places. But you know what we have? We have panic moments. I want you to come to this series next week that we're starting, uh, Anxious for Nothing. I'm going to preach on t- for two weeks about anxiety out of one of the most popular passages in all of Scripture. Probably the most popular passage out of Scripture. and But... The the, the truth of the matter is, we don't have these places where we go to meet God. When the dollars don't make sense, you've been there, sitting at your kitchen table, maybe in your office, and you're trying to figure it out. When the kids are, 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 are losing their mind. The marriage is falling apart. Our first inclination is to figure it out on our own, to figure it out on our own mind, to figure it out on our own understanding rather than going to the usual place. My family knows if they come into my bedroom and find me at the foot of my bed, on my knees, they know I'm in my usual place. Listen, I'm not holier than you. I'm not better than you. Matter of fact, I'm worse than you. And that's why I know I need the usual place. I need to get somewhere where my knees get dirty. And I'm seeking the face of the Father. But many of us are, our priorities are all out of whack. I should have said this the last two services. Pablo, I'm sorry for not saying this the last two services. Here's what's going to happen. This afternoon, some of y'all are going to be watching your game. I'm okay with you watching your game. But listen, you know where you really need to be? You need to be here praying. Look, come on, I'm just getting in your business. Some of y'all going to be watching it, have a great time. Blah, blah, blah. Listen, no matter what happens in the game today, that ain't changing eternity for any of us. That ain't changing relationships for any of us. But there are some of you who are sitting next to your spouse and you need to be here at the foot of God praying for your marriage. Begging the Lord to step in and do what you've been trying to do for 10 years that you haven't been able to accomplish. Some of y'all need to be in here asking God to provide and give a provision that you can't get yourself. That you've been scheming and, and doing all the things to try to get and ain't going to work out. Or you can sit on your couch and watch the game. Hey. 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 They withdrew, and they're in proximity to Jesus. The disciples aren't far away. Come on, somebody. Sometimes we can't hear what Jesus is saying because we're too far away. The disciples aren't in some other city. They're They're in earshot, eyeshot of Jesus. And Jesus prays to show that prayer is a provision To not fall into sin. He goes off and models that prayer is a provision to not fall into sin. That's what he's showing the disciples. And he prompts them to pray. He prompts the disciples to pray. Because he understands that these boys are hungry. He understands that we are hungry. You're looking at me, you're like, Carl, you're always hungry. I can tell. (laughs) It's not that funny, okay? (laughs) But I'm not talking about physically hungry. I'm talking about spiritual malnutrition. Jesus understands that there is some spiritual malnutrition, and they need some sustenance. He said in Matthew 6, this is how you should pray. This is how you should pray. Give us today our daily bread in the usual place that you would ask God, God provide again today. And the first century listener would have understood exactly what Jesus was talking about because their minds would have gone back to the desert when the Hebrews were led out of Egypt by Moses and when they were. Physically in need. God provided for them. He made a provision for them. And God sent manna, which literally means, what is this? To, be fought, to fall on the floor each morning, each evening. And they would gather that manna and they would make bread out of it. And they would be nourished and provided for. But then Moses says, take only enough for today take only enough for today moses why only take enough for today so that you would understand that it's your daily bread that comes from the hand of the father that each night when you go to bed belly full You would know it was provided for by the father that each morning as you woke up hungry and in need, you would seek him and say, provide for me once again. Some of y'all go to bed hungry when you should fill your hearts with the convictions and the truth of God's word that allows you to sleep peacefully. And then when you arise the next morning that you would arise with a hunger and a desire to say, God, give me my daily bread. But that can only be met when we seek Him and when we pray. Because, listen, my friends, when you and I do that, we realize it's about Christ in us. We realize that it's about Christ being for us. We realize how desperate we are for Christ Jesus. In Mark's account of this same garden instance, Jesus says to Peter in Mark 14, 38, the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Come on, somebody. Does anybody, has anybody ever been there? where well, your spirit is willing. The living God inside of you, the Holy Spirit inside of you is willing, but your body is weak. So instead of submission to the Father, we seek our own way. What temptation? was jesus telling these men to not fall into it was the temptation of thinking you can do it on your own what temptation is jesus trying to keep us from falling into the temptation to think you can do it on your own listen when you when i meet jesus face to face in eternity all people will stand before god in judgment one day and when we face jesus Jesus isn't going to be pulling out the roster and going, oh, how often did you go to church? Oh, 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 how how much did you give? How good of a Christian? were Jesus, that's not my business. Jesus is going to be, God's going to be asking, were you obedient to me? Was your whole life obedient to me? There's going to be a lot of good people who don't go to hell. And there's going to be a lot of good people who don't go to heaven. But when duism gets a hold of us, it makes us think that we are in control. Look at verse 42. Verse 42. Luke writes. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. This is a debated verse in scripture as it's in some manuscripts and not in other manuscripts. But the reason Luke put this in there, excuse me, it's not this passage, it's the next passage, where he says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will be done, but yours be done. The writer is pointing to us, that Jesus demonstrates the patience to wait on the will of God to be fulfilled. Jesus isn't trying to circumvent God's plan. Jesus isn't like, "Oh God, let, let, let's Father, Dad, let's figure out some other way. Let, let's just anything else can happen." But no, no. Jesus knows. That since Adam and Eve took the bite of that forbidden fruit, that this had to happen. And he's not trying to circumvent God's plan. He's actually probing, probing the matter of the cross with his father. Saying, Dad, I know this is what needs to be done. And I am going to wait for my will and your will to be in line with one another. That it may be fulfilled. For they are good. I can't wait for the hot pocket to come out of the microwave. And here's Jesus waiting on the Father. Waiting on the Father. Jesus solves our problem of separation from God. There's one way. There's one way. John captures this in John 4, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Look at me in the eyes, friends. One way. See, in our, in our find your tr- live your truth society, Oh, girl, live your truth. There's a bunch of ways. Ah, you can figure out, you do you, you you do you. It'll work out in the end. No, sorry. Jesus goes, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Could could that be more clear for you, my friend? Ah, Christians are closed-minded. You yeah, guys are closed. I, I don't get it. Some of you are sitting here and you're too smart for me. Closed minded. Sorry. That doesn't make sense. There's, there's just, just celestial things and, and, and P X Q Y. There's got to be another way. Sorry. No. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, you know what stops us from believing that? What stops us from living by that? Us? Our submission. Authority, our submission to obedience, our submission from admitting we got a problem that needs a solution. Friends, can I be honest with you? I got a problem that needs a solution. And that's the person of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus does something in the garden that no one else in all of creation could ever do. He drinks from the cup of wrath. He drinks from the cup of wrath. When Jesus says, Father, if you're willing to take this cup from me, the cup he's talking about is the cup that Isaiah writes about in the Old Testament. It's a cup that John writes about in Revelation. The cup of wrath that will be poured out on those who are far from Christ, those who are separated from Christ christ the cup of wrath that will fill mouths and bellies for eternity in separation from god in a place we don't like to talk about oh it's he double hockey stick because you got sensibilities, so i don't want to tell you that there's a place called hell hey we all believe in heaven we all believe, hey, after this life, you know, some of y'all are crazy and you think that just ends one day. But hey, you got more faith than I do. But there's the rest of us who are like, well, something good happens. Everybody just kind of gets in. Universalism, nope. There's heaven and there's hell. And this is the weight that's on Jesus' shoulders. Carl, settle down. I can't. This is the weight that's on Jesus' shoulders. He is drinking the cup of the eternal torment that man and woman and child separated from God will taste for all of eternity. We're playing. We are playing too much. We got our lives hitched up to ponies. We got our lives hitched up to man's back. We got our lives hitched up to to, to all types of different contraptions. Rather than hitching our star, hitching our wagon to the certainty of Christ Jesus and the work that he finished on the cross. There should be nothing more important to you in this world, in this life, than every person you know, starting with yourself. Come to know and accept the truth that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And the only connection to God. The doctrine of propitiation. Focuses on this area. Saying that there needs to be something. A satisfactory substitution for the righteous anger of God. There must be a satisfactory substitution for the anger, the righteous anger of God. You understand that? The righteous anger, meaning God has all the right to be angry at sin. And Jesus consumes that in the garden. But there's good news. God loves you so much. Look at me in the eye. God loves you so much that he made a way. God cares about you so much that he made a way. God took you in your waywardness, in my waywardness, in my wild living, and he grafted me into the body of Christ. He grafted me into the promise that he gave Abraham thousands of years ago, that we are his children. Paul draws this picture, this living illustration for us in Romans eleven seventeen, where he says, but if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them, of the rich root of the olive tree. Remember, we are in an olive grove. And what would happen is, the Roman armies the roman uh, uh, factions to build their temples and their buildings they came into jerusalem and they cut down many of these olive trees that had stood for hundreds of years some for thousands of years but the people knew how important these olive trees were so they would go to the stumps of these olive trees and they would take wild shoots of olive branches found elsewhere and they would cut into the stump and they would put the wild shoot into it and then the two would become one And now you can walk around Jerusalem and you can't tell what trees have been there for 100 years, 500 years, 1,000 years because they have been grafted in. And Paul gives us this illustration saying, look at this. The roots are the covenant that God made with Abraham. The trunk is God's people, Israel, the first incarnation of his blessing on this earth. The trees of the olive branch represent peace. And God's saying, I am bringing you into this family of peace and giving you the promise and the covenant rooted in Abraham. I'm solving your problem for you. That is good news, my friend. then it gets squirrely in verse 43. An angel from heaven appeared to him, appears to Jesus, and strengthens him. See, this is the one that has some different commentaries where it's in some manuscripts and not in others. But uh, Luke being an intellect, Luke being like, the, the, he's a physician by trade. He's, he's just very precise. Luke puts this into his account to draw our attention to here. The word strengthened is only used one other time in the New Testament. It's used in Acts where Paul is strengthened. He's actually given nourishment. And then... On the road to Damascus, God is revealed to Paul. What does all that mean? It means this. Jesus is at the edge of literal death in the garden. And then God comes down and strengthens him gives him physical nourishment for the 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 the, the trials that he is about to face the the literal separation from god that he is about to face god fills him up and gives him the the energy god gives him the sustenance god gives him the gumption to face what he's about to face and then it says what this in verse 44 and being in anguish he prayed more earnestly the story would have been over right at that period of 43 If God had not strengthened Jesus for the work that was ahead. Look at me now as I want you to get this. God wants to strengthen you for the work that's ahead. God wants to strengthen you for the work that is ahead. And when God strengthens you, it doesn't mean, okay, hey, hey, it's all good. I'm going to just jump out and keep doing my thing. No, no, no. I pray more earnestly. I pray more earnestly. Listen, this wasn't some crackerjack prayer. Jesus praying for about three hours in the garden. Under so much physical turmoil. Under so much physical turmoil that literally, again, the physician Luke writes this, that the capillaries underneath his skin begin to burst and blood begins to mix with his sweat and it falls to the ground. In anguish, but yet he still seeks the will of the Father. and then he rises from his prayer and he goes to his disciple and he finds them asleep because they're exhausted. They're exhausted not because they had worked so much, but they had watched their master, their Lord, their healer, the one who told Lazarus to rise from the dead, the one who looked at the storm and told it to be still, the one who had fed thousands and thousands with a few fish and a couple of loaves of bread. They have watched him at earshot, at eyeshot, anguished to the point of death. And they're so overwhelmed that their bodies just give out. because he is full of grace because he is full of love because he is full of power he says get up get up and pray that you will not fall into temptation look at me in the eye somebody Jesus telling you this morning get up get up because God persevered Jesus through his suffering and strengthened him Jesus was Jesus has persevered through his suffering strengthened by God that we may receive the promise that there is nothing God can't get us through. That you and I may receive the promise that there is nothing that God can't get you through. Remember, Gethsemane is called the oil press. That's because... They would come and they would shake these oil branches they would shake these olive branches, and olives would fall into nets, and they would take those nets and they would put them into an olive press, which is a large granite stone circular mill, and they would take large rocks that were attached to wild animals, and those animals would walk around this giant basin and crush these olives. And from those olives would come olive oil. Now this isn't Rachel Ray's E V O O. This is anointing oil. David writes about in Psalm twenty-three. This is the oil that would be used in that same temple across from from the Mount of Olives. This is the same oil that would be used to light lanterns in homes. This is the same oil that would be used to 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 anoint kings. And it would fall into a basin at the foot of this olive mill. And then you know what they would do? They'd come with jars of clay. See, in the first century, when you had something precious, you would put it in jars of clay. The original manuscripts of Scripture, the Dead Sea Scrolls, were found in jars of clay. They would take these jars of clay and they would fill them with this precious oil. And Paul writes this to the church in Corinth, and writes this to us. But we have have this treasure in jars of clay to show this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed; perplexed, but not despair; persecuted, but not abandoned; struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in us. You and I are jars of clay. And it's not oil that is within us us but it's the living blood of Jesus Christ empowered to us by the Holy Spirit that gives us instant and eternal access to God the Father at any moment at any time to access him and ask him and seek him for wisdom for discernment for direction for provision all the needs you have in this world God has given you access through the precious blood of Jesus Christ my friends all you've got to do is say yes Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Here I am. And if you're walking around. Disconnected. Without peace, without hope. There is good news in the person of Jesus Christ. We have access. Prayer may not deliver you from your trials. But prayer will deliver you through trials. I preached this before to you, man. I told y'all. Scripture told us we are but sojourners. Travelers in this world. We are just passing through. Come on, somebody. Jesus is strengthening us. As we pass through this life, as we pass through this world, he is strengthening us. He is connecting us as we pass through. Are you connected? In 1977, in the summer of 1977, there was a blackout in Manhattan, in all of, excuse me, all the boroughs of New York. And the whole place goes dark. And people do what they do in darkness. Darkness. They act a fool. You and I, when we're living in darkness, we act a fool. And as the sun sets, people begin to notice something strange. Though the whole city, all the boroughs are in darkness, across the water, the Statue of Liberty is lit up. And they do some investigating, and they realize... The Statue of Liberty doesn't receive its power from New York City or any of its boroughs. The Statue of Liberty receives its power from New Jersey. So in the darkness, it shines because its connection is somewhere else. In the the darkness, will you shine? You will if your connection is somewhere else, not rooted and grounded in this world. But rooted and grounded in the person of Jesus Christ, connected to the Father God who is all-knowing, who is all-powerful, who is almighty. And he's saying, you're walking around without hope, without peace, because you're not connected to me. Is there anybody in this place that needs some Jesus today? Not Jesus holding the lamb. Not Jesus walking on water. Not Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Is there anybody that needs a Jesus who is knelt down in the dirt of Jerusalem, oh, yeah. beads of blood and sweat dripping from his brow, seeking and knowing the Father to deliver peace and reconciliation for every man, woman, or child? Is there anybody that needs that Jesus this morning? Oh, yeah. If that's you, would you stand to your feet? If that's you that says, "I need that Jesus," hey. News flash. That's all of you. All of you should be standing up. Yeah. Yeah. Don't worry. It's all of you looking around. No, no. It's you. It's you. It's you. It's you. It's all of you. Hey, there's an old hymn. There's an old hymn that says, what a friend we have in Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and grief he bears. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. What's the vehicle that I carry my grief and my sorrow to Jesus? What's the vehicle? Prayer. Oh, what peace I forfeit. Father God, the peace that I forfeit. All because I don't carry everything to you in prayer. The sign of surrender, would you extend your arms out and sing these beautiful words with me. Whatever grief, whatever trouble, whatever sorrow, whatever need you are carrying right now. Bring it to Jesus. Bring it to this sweet friend. Ask him to provide like a daily bread. Ask him to solve the problem of your sin. And separation. Ask him to receive the promise that he is with you now and forever. Prayer isn't a thing that we just do. Prayer isn't to check a box on a list. Prayer is the lifeline. Our connection not simply our 911 or our emergency call, but our daily, moment by moment connection to God. And if there's anyone in here that feels far from Jesus today, that feels like they don't have this connection with Jesus, I want to challenge you to do. Something bold and courageous. For the very first time in your life, I want you to say yes to Jesus. And thank you, Jesus, for taking the cup of wrath that I deserve. If you want to say yes to Jesus for the very first time in your life, you want to commit your life to Jesus, you want to give your life to Jesus, you want to tether yourself to the one and only source through the person of Jesus, right where you stand, with all eyes closed, with all heads bowed. Would you say, yes, Jesus, today, I accept you as my Lord and Savior. If that's you, just throw a hand up, nice and high, all across this room. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. You can go ahead and put your hand down. If you just raise your hand, I want to invite you into the family of God. You have been grafted in to the eternal promise. And those of us that are already part of the body, may we feel the peace represented in those olive leaves that surpasses all understanding found in the person of Christ Jesus. Father God, may you be with us. May you lead us. May you guide us. May you fill us with courage. May you fill us with hope. May we be more connected to you. We thank you. We love you. In Christ's name, all God's people said, amen, amen, amen. amen.